the dead have no body. The dead have no material life. They arrive when we think of them. They arrive to us disembodied. They arrive as the presence of the fact of the spiritual world. And that's always healing. My name is Lacey Free, and I'm the fucking host of Horror Pod. Welcome to Horror Pod. I am so freaking excited right now. I'm like shaking. This is my first episode of Horror Pod where I don't actually know the person. I did a reading for a lovely magic being named Molly, and Molly said, Lacey, you have to listen to Connor Habib. And I was I listened to you for the first time and you were, it was around the new year and you were talking about how time is shifting and changing and maybe that time is going faster now. But before I jump into all that, I should honor and worship a little bit of Connor. Um, You are a pornographic actor. You are in a thought leader of countercultural mysticism magic. I hate saying all this you are stuff because I don't <laughs> even know if you claim these titles. How about you just tell us who you are? <laughs> I was, I haven't made porn for about seven years. So, but that always is part of you, especially when you've done it for as long as I did. So I don't know, do I claim that or not? Okay, actually, I'm just going to answer your question instead of going over the things you said. So I, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm an author. My novel comes out next year from, it's called Hawk Mountain from Norton in the US and Penguin Doubleday in the UK and Ireland. I'm a podcaster. My podcast is Against Everyone with Connor Beeb, which is... Uh, a podcast about the intersections of politics, philosophy, and spirituality. And yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm, I guess, an occult philosopher is maybe a good way to say it, um, where my philosophy is really informed by occultism. And I also, for a really long time, have been a sex workers' rights advocate, although I am sort of handing that over as much as I can to people that are doing the work now and offering, you know, my perspective and experience where it's needed as someone who was in porn for almost 10 years and escorting for, you know, a while too. So, yeah. Well, 
there's so much that resonates with what you talk about. Um, can we just start talking about time? What do you feel like is happening right now with time? (laughs) Oh, good. I like just jumping into that one. Yeah. I think that there's a reconfiguration of time that's happening. One of the reasons why time comes up for me a lot is because, you know, my understanding of capitalism is that it's a sort of inner sense of time and having this inner sense of time leads us into committing certain kinds of actions, binds us to committing certain kinds of actions. And so capitalism has a lot to do with linear time, uh, a, a certain kind of progression that is really sort of super glued to the way our desire functions work as well, which is the anticipation of something. And that anticipation never goes away whether or not you, you know, put stuff in your anticipation hole, it doesn't move, it doesn't go anywhere. You still want more and more and more because we actually want, like, it's actually a sense of time, a sense of projection into the future, whether it's credit or debt or, you know, even though that those have some connection to past, there's credit or debt, the kinds of anxieties people feel about needing to pay rent all the way up to the kinds of anxieties people feel about buying their fifth car, whatever it is. Obviously, I'm not saying that those two things are equal, you know, in their consequences. And so something that's happening now and something that we have to do now, rather than just talking about how to resist via material conditions, although that is obviously also extremely important, is that we're being called upon to change our sense of time inwardly to move out of the completely claustrophobic uh, cyclical nature of capitalist time frame. And interestingly, one of the things that's happening is that because of the global crisis, people are feeling time differently. And so there's this tremendous opportunity to be able to engage differently and and that has a lot to do with us creating our own rhythms. <laughs> we can we can really get crazy if you want and start talking about the etheric world and the etheric body and the etheric yes. Christ and all that kind of stuff. But but basically, there's a massive opportunity for us right now. And um, even if we don't take it up right away, we've still all been kind of uh, just sort of nudged or kicked or pushed into a different conception of time, a different knowingness about time. And it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's intervened in all our lives. I love how you're saying that. And I feel like globally, we're going through such a massive death process right now. And I love what you're saying about time in correlation to these structures sort of demolishing. What are your feelings with manifestation in relationship to time? Yeah. So, I mean, manifestation is a powerful tool, and I think it's actually a really great thing for people to use if they want to get into understanding magic or that sort of thing. But I also think, you know, it has its own problems. I think for for the most part, manifestation still falls on that sort of anticipatory capitalist timeline of cause and effect. I want this, so I'm going to make this show up. However, there's a truth 
just like there's a there is a kind of truth to capitalism that we can use to understand ourselves there's a truth to manifesting that can give us a profound insight uh into what it is that is actually available to us um but the reason why manifesting <laughs> yeah let's just let's just go here the reason manifesting doesn't really really cut it is because it just sort of keeps you in that same sort of relationship towards time and right now it's really concentrating a certain kind of use of the magical imaginative substance of the world which is it's it's in our moment to kind of move on from that to stop using that substance in those in that way um employing it just to get shit to whatever however none of that is to say like I, I don't have a moral condemnation of it or an ethical condemnation of it or anything like that and i and i don't think that there's no truth to it i, I definitely in fact think that it works um really well for some people um in some circumstances in the world and i think that it also illustrates how, like the kind of direction we're moving in, which is something much more playful, something much more creative and imaginative than a kind of direct cause and effect line from presenting the desire and willing it to appear. Um, yeah. I, it's, it's really interesting because you're asking me these questions that I feel like I, they can just really open up. And so I'm trying to sort of hold back a little bit, not because... I don't think anybody who's listening can handle it or anything like that, but just because I don't want to go in too many places at once, <laughs> you know, I don't want to try to stick. So, so basically yeah. here's the, here's the summary of everything I just said. It's not bad. Um, but we might want to consider doing something else that's reflective of the overall picture of what we need to do, uh, which is move out of that sense of linearity um, that manifestation is really connected to. Yeah. I am the queen of going all over the place. So <laughs> I apologize ahead of time. I might ask you the most random, uncomfortable question. No, that's great. <laughs> um, but I love what you're saying about linear time and this sort of like desperate need for the cause and effect. And, it, and I feel like there's so much with manifestation that ingrains this belief that it's something outside of us. It's like this external validation uh -huh. still. And I'm more interested in manifesting portals, hmm. manifesting totally new dimensions, manifesting new identities and playing and shifting the identities. So I don't see manifestation as just cause and effect, but I love how imagination is linked with manifestation mm. and how we can tap into our imagination to get to that true creativity. But going to that sexual energy, that trauma, that pain, and blossom in to being a shapeshifter or tapping into other identities. Right now, I feel that we live in a simulation where being a human is sort of the myth. And I am of the belief that 
many of us carry superpowers, superpowers being being able to telepathically communicate, uh, astral traveling. Um, I think everyone's psychic. I think everyone can read energy. I think there's some um, vessels that don't carry this superpower that are sort of empty and are used for the matrix. So, and I feel like we just had the spring equinox and in that time, a lot of people are talking about that their superpowers are coming online or that they're feeling not just stuck in this linear human timeline and jumping all different kinds of timelines. So I feel like even the way we see manifestation can be very limited on this linear timeline. But what if we used manifestation to open up the magic in our everyday lives? Yeah. So I like everything you said. I I have one sort of, um, yeah, maybe a point of, I don't really like disagreement. So let's see if this opens things up instead of, shutting them down because I would describe being human actually as the real task, not, um, not the illusory part of what we are in the simulation. Um, but rather seeing that the simulation, what you're calling the simulation, I would say, um, is actually, is for me actually this, uh, the the way that we represent, see, and experience the constitutive forces of the cosmos, and that those play into what we are, which is human, and what does it mean to be human? See, like, I don't want to skip into saying, we're not human, this is a simulation, but rather say, what what's going on here? What is this? How do we understand it? How do we spend a lot of time with that? And then, and I'm not saying you don't do this, but this is just my understanding. So how do we understand that, spend a lot of time with it, and then let our our politics, our ontologies, our epistemologies, phenomenology, all that sort of unfurl from there? Because there's, to me, being human is actually the most sacred thing I can think of. Um, you know, I, there's an agreement of humanness that has to do with my sort of incarnation here in my understanding. Of course, these are just words, like human is just a word and all that kind of stuff. However, like the way that I am existing, I understand you to exist in a sort of similar way. And that's kind of what I'm calling being human. And and I want to understand what that is. And so that's one of the sacred tasks that, you know, it's like the... uh, the medieval saying, what is it like to understand the universe, look to the self, to understand the self, look to the universe, because there's a reciprocal weaving in and out of those forces. I think that once you start to do that, I think if you don't do that, then a lot of these things that you're saying are powers, which I do also agree are sort of coming up and they're just kind of part of what it means to be human, but they can seem so extraordinary if you don't investigate what it means to be human, that they can distort your experience of yourself, of what it is to be you, of what it is to be this evolving state and tone of consciousness within these constitutive forces. And that can actually drive you deeper into that everyday kind of personhood. So like when people say something like, um, you know, like, you know, the language, it's like someone uh, sees a ghost or, 
you know, gets a phone call when they're just thinking of somebody or whatever. And they're like, isn't that so crazy? You know, like, <laughs> wow, these things just keep happening to me. Right. Yeah. There's a way in which that can really fix the person in the everydayness um, rather than them saying, no, that's not crazy. That's normal. That's actually part of how things work. But if I accept that it's normal and part of how things work, then I have to really investigate what normal and how things work is again. And I have to understand, you know, sort of reinvestigate. So there's a way in which these kinds of powers can sort of fix us in a way. And uh, in a place where we, I, I would rather we not stick around and not be fixed in. It's fine. if It's not, everybody gets to do it their own way, which is also awesome. Um, <laughs> but uh, do you see what I mean? So I don't. Yeah, I just wanted to sort of pull that aspect of it apart a little bit. Yeah, I totally see what you mean. And I highly encourage you to disagree with me. <laughs> I think something that is so painful in spirituality or in communities or grouping is groupthink and feeling like we can't have a common bond and have extremely different beliefs. Mm-hmm. It's language. I think a lot of this is language. What What is it to be a human? And I also think that in spirituality, we can use the idea of having superpowers and being magical as escapism mm-hmm. from yeah. our pain, from our trauma, from everyday reality. I know I've used it as escapism. But I don't necessarily think that's bad, but I used it as escapism. Coming from extreme abuse and being like physically abused, that's when I first started getting the message that I had superpowers. Mm-hmm. Was that a delusion? Maybe. Was that escapism? Most definitely. Was there some truth in it? I think so. Um, by being physically abused, I became extremely hypervigilant right. and very aware of my surroundings to the point where I was six or seven and able to read everyone's energy in the room, to tap into their physical bodies and their energy fields. And I think I just had to learn that as a means of survival um, from sexual abuse at a very early age. But throughout my 20s, I think I heavily leaned on the psychic, the energy work, Mm. getting drunk. These were all like my coping methods Mm. of my own pain and trauma. So I think there's a way we have to just face our trauma in the everyday human form. And I think there's a way that escapism can be a portal to a new reality. Yeah. I mean, it's really profound, everything you're saying, because it's such a difficult thing for some people to talk about, right? Like some people use um, the sort of spiritual stuff and spiritual abilities to, yeah, escape, as you say, trauma. Some people use trauma to escape spiritual reality. Um, You know, the it's definitely true that people who have been abused um, sexually, physically, emotionally, if you get into a hyper space or you disassociate, um, you're experiencing an altered form of consciousness that a lot of people around you might not be experiencing or, you know, 
maybe they have experienced it, but you know, not not as often or not as intensely. So that does give you a different view of reality, and it does allow you to experience, you know, these sort of aspects of spirituality. So, but then you got to be careful saying talking about that because then it sort of sounds like, oh, well, see how the abuse was a good thing, you know, and we 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 don't want that either. But we also have to admit at the same time that materialism is also a like a real intense form of violence and and trauma. And then as you get older, you know, um, sometimes spiritual aptitude is actually a replaying of <laughs> the wounding and yeah. is actually p- just PTSD, you know, because you're just re-evoking the altered state of consciousness that you're in without really the ability to navigate or go through it. So it's really, really um, intensely woven together. And we need to be able to sort of pull these apart without, without, making sure that others are pinned down into our definition or how we see it. You know, some people, I mean, we, we've all heard of people that were like, well, I'm so, you know, yes, it was horrible that I was sexually abused as a kid, but I'm so glad it happened to me because if it hadn't, I wouldn't have blah, 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 blah. Right. Like we can hear those sort of hero narratives about these kinds of things, which might be repulsive to some people. Um, Yeah. We, but we can also hear like the, you know, I'm, I'll never recover that. That was so horrible. Like everybody who wounds someone like that should spend their lives in prison. And like, that might be repulsive to us. And so we just, it's a lot to navigate. It's really tense and there's a lot to pull apart. So I really like the way that you said it. And I think actually this is one of those instances where going all over the place is the right move because it allows for a lot of freedom of interpretation um, a lot of freedom for the individual and and allows a chance for compassion, like where you don't have to make somebody think the way you think about it, you know? Completely. I feel like I am an avatar sort of playing a video game. And I don't necessarily mean video games like Mario Kart. I just mean when I say I'm a god, I feel like I'm an autonomous being who's able to control, in some sense, my reality. And when I refer to my guides, I see it as higher versions of myself on other timelines. Uh And the way I look at abuse, my own personal abuse now, is that a higher version of myself chose this abuse to have the experience. And I think we're moving out of dichotomy, like good and bad. And I now, I don't see my abuse as a bad experience. Mm -hmm. I see it as an experience that offered suffering and pain and darkness. But so much of how I maneuver and function and dance in the world now takes this wisdom of the darkness And I think the light shines the brightest Mm -hmm. in the dark and that it just gives me a fuller view of my own reality. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, I think it's, it's something that, you know, definitely when I was younger, when I would look at stuff that happened to me when I was a kid, I always used to think I want my past back. Like it feels lost, you know? And then, you know, now to now where I just think, okay, that 
that happened. It was, it took a lot for me to deal with that. I'll never a hundred percent know, or maybe I will, but right now it feels like I'll never a hundred percent know if I'm better off if that happened or not, you know? So, um, what do I do with it? You know, and you can look at people that have experienced, you know, the most extreme forms of state oppression and see that the ones, the people who have done really amazing things after that, not to make that demand on everybody, but yeah, I think that there's real wisdom in listening to them, of course, you know, and, and in hearing them. And it would be great to co-create a world where that wasn't the initiatory process anymore. If it is indeed an initiatory process, what I think that it is, I think many things are initiatory on many different levels. So it'd be great if we could co-create a world where that wasn't the demand any, anymore. And again, it's ensconced within a generally materialistic worldview. So materialism continues to demand that violence be the initiatory portal because it is itself violent. And it also means that we relate to ourselves through our bodies as private property. And so we've got to co-create a world where that is no longer the case. And um, yeah, and until then, until then we're going to have to struggle through these questions. I'd rather have different questions that are more exciting than, you know, I mean, I'm having a good time talking with you about it, but I mean, as like a life challenge question, I'd rather have one that was more exciting to me than am I just a product of my abuse or would I have been better off without it? Or am I, you know what I mean? It's like, fuck, like I've asked myself that question eight bajillion times in my life. It's, you know, I would love for other people to have more interesting questions to contend with. You know. Yeah. Have you always been magic? Who were you when you were seven? Seven's an interesting age because it's right around the time when I really discovered like actual magic magic when I found this book called Curses, Hexes, and Voodoo Spells, or I think that's what it's called. And it was in the library of my school for some reason. I stole it. I still have it. Um, And I just did every spell in the book, literally. And it was like, sell your soul to the devil. Um, And so make voodoo dolls, make, you know, turn yourself into a cat, make somebody fall in love with you. So I'm like a little boy doing this stuff. And it's very clear to me that you know, in this incarnation, I actually had to get that out of the way, like the recapitulation of the sort of black magic or dark arts or whatever you want to call it incarnation that I had had before. It was like, you got to like, just get over this immediately. Like you got to get through it immediately. And it really did mess me up for a while doing that stuff. But I think, um, yeah, it was definitely necessary, but even, I mean, my first memory is a sort of magic memory. My first memory is of a dream. And I was in the dream. I was eaten by a fox, which was eaten by a wolf, which was eaten by a bear. And then I woke up. And after the bear ate the wolf, which ate the fox, which ate me. And um, so I, my first memory is of a dream and then waking up from it. And it's this very, 
you know, I mean, not to appropriate shamanic stuff, but I mean, but you would say that's like a shamanic dream or whatever, just because of the imagery. I didn't have any, you know, control over the imagery as a kid at that point, you know? And so, um, so even as far back as I can remember, there are these sort of, yeah, magical things for sure. Yeah, I can totally, I totally felt that you've always been tapped into that magic. And right now I'm really into holographic healing. Mm. And that's sort of the idea that you can jump dimensions and timelines and you can just break it down and call it like inner child work. Mm. But to me, inner child work feels like, like depressing, kind of like sad or sobby, but it's going to this deep state of meditation where the Connor you at this timeline goes back and hangs out with your seven-year-old self Mm -hmm. and talks magic and brings gifts or items to that seven-year-old to help them feel abundant, to help them feel safe or help them tap into their creativity. And the coolest part of this is really hearing what that seven-year-old self has to say to you. Mm-hmm. And I I do this with people. We, we do it together in holographic healing sessions. And the number one thing when I ask people what they would bring their younger selves that I hear from all genders, everyone, almost every time, is that they would bring their younger self flowers. Hmm. And I think that's so beautiful. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe people want color in their memory. I mean, I think that that's part of it probably is the idea of um, exporting different kinds of light to that time. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Color and I think smells, but I also feel like flowers, like flower essences as an herbalist, flowers bring so much healing. Mm -hmm. When I was little, I would see people bring each other roses like on Valentine's day. And then growing up and learning about herbalism, I learned that the roses are healers of the cardiovascular system, Mm -hmm. that they're actually good for the heart when you drink it. Rose hips are full of vitamin C. So that's what they're doing on the physical level. But I think on a metaphysical level, they're also bringing higher vibrations. Yeah. Well, and just the sort of, I mean, I don't really use the term chakras much, but definitely like, you know, the petals on the chakra opening up. I mean, there's an impulse there too. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What would you bring your seven year old self <laughs> off the top of your head? Uh, I don't know, like a gun. No, I don't know. Um, I think <laughs> um, I was going to ask you more about violence. Okay. <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, I mean, the reason I say that is because I know that version of me was trying to access power, you know, like a sense of power. So it's obviously a joke. It's like, you know, guns don't really. Well, some, they give some people power, but they don't. And, but I don't really want, I don't know. I don't know what I would give that part of myself that there's, there's older versions of myself that demand more or, or need, need the backwards message more, you know, need me reaching through time and saying, you know, what's up. Thanks for being smart enough to get me here. You know? Uh, so yeah. Because that that teenage version of myself was so smart, and I just didn't know it then. 
meaning so resourceful and so, you know, crafty to be able to maneuver me through and not have his soul, have his body, but also really mostly have his soul or spirit just crushed. So, yeah. When did you discover and how did you discover you were smart? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a funny question. That actually, again, is seven, around seven I remember this is just so classic, you know, version of me up until rather recently where I just really was kind of a dick about being smart. Like I remember I knew every animal, like I I was obsessed with animals. I could, you know, I could read from a really early age and I spent a lot of that time reading sort of cataloging and remembering the names of all kinds of bizarre, strange, exotic animals and learning their habits and all that kind of stuff. And I remember (laughs) walking up to my second grade teacher, Mrs. Hassler, and I had a picture of a krill and I showed it to her and I was like, Hey, I said, what is this? And she said, it's a shrimp. And I said, "Mm, no, it's actually, (laughs) it's a krill. I'm smarter than you. And I walked back to my desk and sat down. (laughs) Now, now obviously, you know, it's like, that's a funny moment. I take some pleasure reporting that. But that general move was, you know, ultimately ended up being pretty isolating because I felt very alone in being smart, you know, like, when you realize when you're a kid, you're like, why do I have to raise my hand to do shit in school? Like the teachers do not like you after you have that realization, you know, um, <laughs> like, you know, and I, I remember, you know, just different versions of that, just different versions of that in school, like talking about a rain of frogs once in biology class. And the teacher said, that's bullshit. And so I brought in a book, which was actually this book by, edited by but it compiled by Vincent Price called Monsters but it had like all these oddities in it and stuff and it had this one chapter on you know how it rained frogs in this one city which of course has happened and I brought it up and she held the book up and she's like he thinks that it's in here and she like got the whole class to laugh at me and I was like why don't you read a book Mm -hmm. you asshole you know like oh I hated her she's just a mean person (laughs) And also weirdly hit on a lot of the girls in the class. She was just terrible. But anyway, um, but (laughs) so anyway, I think, I think it was, it it was high school for sure where I thought, okay. And it, but that drove me deeper and deeper into a sense of isolation. I mean, I used to say, I don't know if I agree with this anymore, but I used to say a lot, like of all the things I've ever been or done, like, being, you know, gay or attracted to men, being spiritual, being a sex worker, whatever, the thing that made me feel the most isolated was being smart. And it continues to because people fucking hate you when you want to pursue intelligent things. I mean, they really get really angry. I mean, I had a whole, this blog wrote a whole, when I was making porn, this blog did a whole post about like how I was kind of stepping out of line because I was talking about Lacan online and stuff and like what an idiot I must be and like I'm just so pretentious and all this and you know it's just like I just enjoyed that stuff and I was sharing it you know (laughs) with others but um 
but then again, I have, I was, I was kind of a dick about being smart. Like, you know, like when people would sort of come at me for saying something that they didn't agree with, I'd be like, why don't you just shut the fuck up and think about what I said? You know? Yeah. So like there was also, because I, I felt so isolated for so much of my life in it, when someone revealed to me that there was maybe a gap in understanding, or maybe there wasn't a gap and they did completely understand and I was just being smug, it would just create instant, it was like the operation board, you know, like instantly my yeah. nose would light up and I'd be like, eh, like I, I was so tense, tense around. Yeah. And so I have not always lived up to the responsibility of, you know, not isolating myself over it either, you know? Yeah. I think in the materialism culture, in the capitalism culture, we're, we're so taught to be individualistic and competitive. And I think right now we're reprogramming that. And I think part of how we reprogram that is celebration, mm. is honor and worship of others, mm. superpowers. And that sounds a little corny, but I think intelligence is is an, a magnificent superpower. And I am in love with your intelligence. <laughs> I've only listened to you for a short period of time, but I'm fascinated by it. And you're very impeccable when it comes to research and your podcast is dope. Thanks. <laughs> and I think part of reprogramming this as a collective is really worshiping and honoring each other's attributes. Mm -hmm. And I think two attribu attributes that are very confusing, especially in the United States, is intelligence and beauty. Mm -hmm. And in one way, we uplift them and say it's the ultimate to be intelligent, beautiful, and rich. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we dismantle the beautiful people, the intelligent people, and we fucking hate the rich people, eat mm -hmm. the rich. Mm -hmm. And I can see both sides, but I believe every being has certain superpowers and maybe beauty isn't one of them for someone, or maybe intelligence isn't one of them. But I truly believe when we honor that, when we uplift that in an authentic way, not just giving like loose mm. comp compliments but when we honor it in an authentic way we uplift their power which is uplifting our own yeah yeah i love that i mean and i think it, there's there's you know so much of it depends on what people do with that attribute or that power right i mean it's really obvious when someone has a lot of money and they strive through they strive to do right with that that's been granted to them and people will still hate them no matter what <laughs> what it is that yeah. they do with the money because they have the money um it's really hard i mean and it's the same thing you know i'm thinking about particularly you know women who are according to society's standards like absolutely beautiful and they'll a lot of them will therefore make porn and that porn you know gives them a lot in their lives and really gives over to other people pleasure excitement enthusiasm for sexuality all that and then they're just hated anyway for it you know um certainly intelligent people it's like everybody wants somebody to be intelligent but then when the intelligent person sees something that they feel they have a responsibility towards and it's not in the kind of 
consensus that people have come up with about how things are run, they're definitely hated for it. So, you know, the celebration, you're right, it's there, but it only takes people so far. I mean, I always, it's something that's always been really fascinating to me is where people get off the bus. Like, where do you, where, like, if someone really loves, um, let's just come up with, you know, like Jack Parsons, right? I mean, I'm not like a huge fan of Jack Parsons, but he's an interesting person to me. The um, rocket scientist who also then did a lot of ritual magic with Aleister Crowley and who Ellen Hubbard essentially ripped off in a lot of ways. But so obviously everybody honors Jack Parsons for being a rocket scientist. They think he's so great, but then they get off the bus as soon as he starts doing the magic stuff. And it's always interesting to me why stop there? Like, if you honor that this person is brilliant, why did you stop honoring them at this point? And yeah. so it'd be really interesting for me to see what a celebration would be like that was unconditional, you know, yeah. that wasn't, I, I celebrate you when you do with the content of your, what you're calling power or your attribute, your skill, your capacity, your given role, whatever that is, I celebrate it beyond what I think you should be wielding it for. That's, yeah. that's, uh, <laughs> that's tricky. And it's interesting, I, you know, I don't think we know how to celebrate. Um, <laughs> I really don't. Mm. I think in sort of what you're saying or what I'm hearing is that celebration is conditional. Sure. Like I'll celebrate you as long as you do a, B and C. And for the most part, I think celebration has been ripped from us. I think celebration is truly spiritual and ritualistic. Mm. And I think it's been commodified and turned into this capitalism. Mm. When I was working and managing the strip club, first of all, I was terrified to fucking ever work there because I'm five foot three and pretty fat and not what you would consider beautiful to society standards. And I was like, oh no, I'm working with the hottest girls in the city and I'm going to be so mm -hmm. judged. And, and let me tell you, it was <sighs> awkward because I had to hire strippers and I had to hire them based on the owner's standards. Mm. And she was a woman, but she had very strict beauty standards. And a lot of them had to do with weight. So girls would come in and audition. And then me being way fatter than them, I had to sit, look at them in their eyes and say, you're not the right size to work here. Mm -hmm. You can go, you can work out, you can do whatever. And I would try not to say too much. And I would try to not be in that role as much as possible because what a fucking conflicting message to them. <laughs> and, but one thing I did learn in that role was who I was was uplifted by the girls. They weren't like, oh, you're ugly. And they they weren't, for the most part, competitive with each other the way I thought they would be. There was over 300 strippers and I thought they were going to be really catty and mean to each other or highly competitive. And what I did see is them celebrating each other's abundance, that them teaming up and working together. And I don't want to make it sound all love and light, but there was this, this totally new reality of, of collective abundance mm. and a place where I could 
be myself in it. Everyone was empowered to be their character and treat it as though it was theater. And in being characters, I learned how to truly be myself. And I watched other girls learn how to be themselves. But I also watched girls sort of lose themselves in Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the way that I talk about that, you know, I think people who are sex workers particularly, but I think this can be expanded to other people. You know, I said like the people who can really handle and thrive in sex work. And I don't just mean make money, but actually come to appreciate the content of their day, which is, it's fine to just do it for money too. Obviously I hold that view and, and to use it as a survival strategy and, and as a, you know, a tactic or whatever, but the people who thrive in it on multiple levels are usually the ones who actually find themselves disidentifying with their bodies as they do it rather than being driven deeper into their bodies, you know, and disidentifying with your body can mean working out and getting, you know, for a dude like six pack abs, you know, and show and showing up and getting Jack to be in porn. Right. Or it could mean whatever, whatever it means, you know, and I think that, um, so there's a sort of trick there, which is very difficult for people when it comes to any kind of sex work or sex work adjacent work, which I, I'm not exactly sure how all strippers sort of identify if it's sex work or not, but the, um, I know for some it is, but it, the, the idea is like, if you can move into something that society views as the most materialistic and you can do this anti-materialist or non-materialist move in it suddenly you have this really you're standing in this really intense it's almost like you're standing in the portal gateway the entire time like you're in both worlds and i knew that that was true when i was like you know like an eight hour porn shoot which is completely unreasonable to fuck for eight hours but you know i was like i get my body to do this thing and did you go into a meditative state with that? Not meditative. It was like, I would, you know, I mean, the outsider describes it as mechanical, which I hate. It wasn't mechanical at all. I would say it's athletic, you know, an athletic state, which some people can compare athleticism to meditation, of course, or what, whatever. But it was, I didn't feel like it was meditative. It was an altered state of consciousness, though, of, of course, you know. I mean, everything's an altered state of consciousness, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I really like what you, there was like this in-between state in, in the club. And there was some, there's something I believe about collapsing timelines and it's sort of going to the darkest timeline and surrendering to it. What I mean by that is there was something about the strip club where if you would have asked me before I worked there, if I was materialistic or capitalistic or cared about money, I would have said, none of those things are real and they're not me. 
And then I stepped into the club and saw, ooh, I can be materialistic too. Ooh, <laughs> this is kind of uh-huh. fun. Uh-huh. Ooh, capitalism, capitalism is abundance. Let's mm. do it. And I started associating capitalism with freedom. But I feel like I needed to to sort of immerse into that all-encompassing materialistic state to be able to collapse the timeline. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is to yes. like fully let me let me feel that material materialism within me. Fully let me embrace that capitalistic narcissistic side of me and the bitching side of me. Mm-hmm. I had to be a meaner version of myself mm-hmm. to survive in that. But then yeah. I had to break it down. And it's like I watched that collapse. And maybe I didn't have to be a meaner version of myself. And maybe I didn't have to do any of that. But by doing that, I got into my body more by disassociating with my body. I feel like right now I released a lot of that capitalism desire seeking because I fully stepped into it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like maybe you didn't have to do it, but that's one of the pathways for you to do it. Right. So like, and that was the one you found to do it. So it's like, yeah. it, and I love what you're saying. You know, the, the, the philosopher of Felix Guattari describes that as a line of flight, right? Like it's basically, you just ex- exacerbate the condition so much that eventually you break out of it and you can see above it. I mean, yeah. I've had sex with thousands of people. I definitely have a better view of sex than most people at this point. Whereas I think yeah. from the outside, someone might condemn me as like, no, you have like the worst view of it. But actually, no, I can I can really see the shape of sex. Like that, I can see that being, you know, now. And I think yeah. it's interesting too, when you talk about that pathway, you know, my friend Heather Berg, she has a book that's just coming out now as we're recording this, I think, called Porn Work. And um, it's basically a Marxist analysis of material conditions of porn workers. You know, one of the things she points out is a lot of people who are working porn, one of their strategies at the time she was writing it was like before, you know, really the rise of OnlyFans and Just for Fans. But she was saying one of the strategies is like, I want to be my own boss, like, so I don't have to deal with producers and directors and all that kind of stuff. And, and she said, you know, I understand how a lot of people would see this as a problem. Like, it's just recapitulating the capitalist hierarchy. And sometimes it does do that. But we also can't dismiss that as one of the kind of pathways out and also one of the ways that erodes those hierarchies to begin with. So she's really yeah. working in a complex way um, from a Marxist standpoint, which she and I, I wouldn't say we disagree, but we get into it a lot over, <laughs> over, over that. But, but I think, you know, she really is showing that as well. Like these are pathways and like any path you can, you know, stop and start picking flowers and then realize you've been in the fairy world for 200 years before you get back on the path again, you know? And so it's important to, follow the actual path if you're going to use it rather than stopping for every distraction at the fairy market along the way, you know? Yes. I love the fairy references. (laughs) How's Dublin right now? It's great. Yeah, it's good. I mean, 
It's it, it's a little difficult in the sense that Ireland has been, I think, on the harshest lockdown of anywhere <laughs> since December. And then we had this kind of lockdown before that and this kind of lockdown before that. And um, it's, uh, you know, and that that's frustrated things. But there's no, you know, I mean, Irish people have lived basically under occupation and colonialism for centuries. So there's no stamping out of the Irish spirit really. Like it just can't happen in the way that it could other places. And so there's still kind of jovial, you know, nature here. And uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. I want to go to Ireland so much (laughs) back to what we were talking about um, with sort of stepping into it to disassociate with it. And That brings me back to this energy of violence you were talking about earlier. I think violence is so oppressed within us. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that from when we're little that we're taught that we may have violent urges Mm -hmm. and that our friends may be violent. I am a, a firm believer in something I call sacred rage and the beauty of truly tapping in, especially as feminine people, to the rage, to the violence, and experiencing it in our bodies. And to be violent doesn't mean that we have to hurt others, and it doesn't even have to include another. Um, We can violently create, we can violently dance, we can throw things, we can write violently, we can scream. Sometimes I even go on this path, and a lot of spiritual people would disagree with me, but when I'm trying to manifest something or level up in my life, I I write down all my fears. I say the worst things about myself out loud. And I sit and I surrender to the energy of being bad or failing or being violent or fucked up. Because I did grow up in violence and I am violent. And in a sense, it's something I have to heal and work on. And then in another sense, it's something to heal it, I have to embrace it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... It's interesting what you say because, you know, we have to be able to pull apart violence from its a, a certain kind of connotation. Because what we need to be able to do is look at everything in the world, everything except for other human beings, and say, that will all go away. But there is an inner aspect to me, which will never go away. So violence is, you know, the, the teacher of that impermeability. I mean, of the, the impermeability of the self, it's the, um, it's the thing that shows us the, the way everything in the world disappears, can disappear. The, threat and danger of power, um, you know, that any one of us is capable at any time of changing the conditions of everything for others or for the environment. And, you know, it also is uh, a flash portal to the realm of the dead. And so, you know, it's important to keep all that in mind. And there's a difference between 
that kind of precarity or that kind of um, lesson and the, and the, the things that we wrap around what we're calling violence. Maybe violence actually is not the right word. Maybe violence is the word for the misuse of the changeability of the world. But it, but it could be also just to say, like, it's good to know that the dead are always near. It's good to know that everything around us will go. I love that so much. And please correct me if I'm misspeaking, but I've heard you talk a little bit about um, feeling suicidal at times or struggling with your own depression. And um, I don't know if you would call yourself this, but the energy I get from you or feel from you is partially an energy of like a healer and you you feel very healing to me and it feels like you've done a lot of work on self and sort of became a healer role for yourself and one of the ways and again correct me if I'm wrong but one of the ways I heard you speak about healing yourself and you didn't say those words is speaking to the dead mm-hmm. how did the dead help you heal yourself yeah you know, the proximity to the dead is always healing, always. In fact, when we sort of overgrieve, whatever that means, <laughs> when we languish in grieving, what we're doing is actually not allowing ourselves to be close to the dead. Wow. And when we, when we this will probably anger some people, but when we do seances, we are also prohibiting our... Uh, our proximity to the dead by making them take physical form because what's so healing about the dead is that they're revealing to us of the continuity of all existence, um, not the severing. And so when we die, we, when, when we're alive, we're addresses of those constitutive forces of the cosmos. They, condense, contract, weave together, and turn their attention towards this spot, which is actually a void, but the nothingness where we stand, <laughs> and yeah. form us through uh, coming together, form us through their negative space. And so when we die, we go back, all those aspects of us go back cha- into the constitutive forces. So the constitutive forces that make us go back into this sort of general constitutive forces changed by their proximity to each other sort of making us. So the dead have no body. The dead have no material life. They arrive when we think of them. They arrive to us disembodied. They arrive as the presence of the fact of the spiritual world. And that's always healing. The fact of the spiritual world is always healing. Not just ideas of it, but the real presence. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's why a lot of people are healed or looking for healing, you know, ancestral healing, all that kind of stuff that people do now. It's it's really that, you know. And I think... I think that it's it can be as simple as just sort of, you know, just talking to somebody. If you're if you're feeling, yeah. I mean, not not everybody has the blessing of knowing someone who's died. In which case, 
you can reach for somebody who you really, you know, maybe you like me are obsessed with James Joyce or something like that. You can just <laughs> talk to James Joyce, but understand that he's not a person anymore. I mean, the, the recently dead still have some of their personhood in, in a way, but over time they become a sort of presence or uh, imprint in the constitutive forces. So just talking to them, it can be yeah. helpful. I love, I love how you just described having someone you know die as a blessing, mm. because I think we're really taught that when we lose someone, it's it's this curse or catastrophe, mm-hmm. and it can feel like that. But I love that you're bringing forward the idea that it can also be a blessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you know when someone dies and they become they go back into those constitutive forces that means that everything they were becomes available to us um, yeah. and we can we can have a new relationship with them and totally. you know some there's someone in my life that i haven't talked to in a really long time who i'm just like excited for that person to die not not in a cruel way but because i want to be able to have the real conversation because i know that it would not be permitted like in that address of who that person is. So, so when, when they die, so the translation of their density back into the wovenness, that translation occurs through the living as grief. So actually the process of sadness when somebody dies is the process of their transformation. Yeah. And so the longer you prolong that process too, the more you keep them from reweaving. And that doesn't mean to not be sad. That's why I said over grieving, like the process has to happen, but don't hold right. on to the process. Cause you're, it's the, the thing to do is not to say, I'm so sad you're gone, please come back, which is what the seance does, but rather to say, I'm so grateful to you. I'm so happy that you get to experience this event, which is the most meaningful event that can happen to any of us. Yeah, so beautiful. I never got along with my grandpa when he was living, and we just got under each other's skin for many, many reasons. As he was dying, now my family are, they're hard workers, they own a steel company. I was removed (laughs) by uh, Child Protective Services when I was 12 and placed with my grandparents. And my grandparents owned a steel company. They don't want to talk about emotions. It's Mm. about being tough, Mm. going to bed at the same time, rising early and working hard and creating your own life and not focusing on the past and not too into feminine energy. And so that didn't vibe so well with the 16-year-old me or my grandfather (laughs) and led to many, many screaming matches. And he was really homophobic and my brother's gay and disabled and he wasn't always so kind about that. So I had a lot of rage towards him, vigorous rage. And when he was dying, everyone was in denial about his death as if Mm. it wasn't going to happen. And they kept just saying, it's okay. Mm. We're going to go on vacation in the summer. And I'm like, he has stage four cancer and he (laughs) can't walk right now. And they're like, what are you talking about? It's fine. 
it's fine. And when he was dying in the process of him being in hospice was excruciating. And I just went and sat outside with myself because everyone was like, you should have your last word with him. You should like, tell him, tell him how you really felt like, forgive him. My grandma's like, you need to go forgive him right now. And I'm like, forgive him. What? (laughs) And I just felt like my guides told me that when he dies, his higher self Mm. will be the embodiment. And when he, when he's dead, that is the place of healing because that's where my higher self and his higher self can connect on another realm. And I don't have to do this clunky work in this dense reality to try to rush some sort of false healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it really, I mean, so first of all, thank you for sharing that story. I, I think it, it, it really speaks to the fact that we have these canned narratives about closure you know, that relate to the urgency of death. And it's not really closure. You know, like people, the person I was talking about before, people are always like, you've got to, you've got to, you know, make amends. You've got to, or not make amends because I didn't do anything wrong, but like, you've got to find forgiveness and blah, blah, blah. And like so many people have said that to me and I'm like, fuck no. Like, no, it's like, when that person reaches out to me, it will, it can ruin, well, it doesn't anymore, but it could ruin like a week, like just to get a text. And I'd be like, totally. Right. Yeah. So it's like, no, actually the, that's not closure. Like that's me satisfying the being of the narrative. And that's me worshiping the being of the narrative. And I'm not willing, that's not, my church like i'm not going there and i actually don't think that that's right and what that does is it keeps us again stuck in materialism when actually there's a real possibility for a different kind of meeting when somebody dies and i don't i i truly do not it's it's not that i don't you know i i one of my best childhood friends is someone i'd known for longer than you know for most of my life you know, and he's the same age as me, died of pancreatic cancer two years ago. And I, I still grieved. I was still very sad, but I don't, I just don't experience death in that way anymore. I understand it now that it isn't like, you don't need to like make everything happen in this lifetime. That's just not true. And, um, but you don't know that unless you know it. You don't, and you, you can't intellectually know it. You have to experience it, or you'll have this lingering, sort of painful doubt constantly following you around, like this little poltergeist, and you don't want that either. So, I'm not telling people just jump past their development process when it comes to relating to the dead, but but you can you can work on it. And one yeah. of the easiest ways is just by talking to dead people. I love that you keep bringing up that we can just talk to them because I have a lot of people who reach out to me and say who's a good medium you recommend Mm. Lacey I need some mediumship and (laughs) you're like you yeah (laughs) you that's exactly what I say and with energy reading there's a lot of codependency like make me feel better and then the energy reader can easily fall into this power role But I think that's dying as time is shifting and capitalism is kind of crumbling. So is the hierarchy of the guru, in my opinion. And the truth is, I really think it just starts with, hello, 
and speaking and and not being fake in that either. So when my grandpa died, it's not like he died and I was just like peaceful and like, oh, he was a wonderful man. Um, <laughs> I was actually really pissed off. And I went outside by myself where nobody else was around. And I was like, fuck you. You hurt me. You made me feel like it wasn't safe to be a girl. You abused my mom. And in turn, she abused us because hurt people hurt people. And I screamed and I got my anger out. And it's not like I just went and screamed at the sky one time and then we had resolved. But it let me tap in and open up this wound where I felt like we had a conversation energetically and mm-hmm. telepathically until it did become resolved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I... And I think we have such weird views of what forgiveness is. And since I was little, everyone kept telling me this Christian version of forgiveness. And it felt like denying of my own truth. It felt like this false sense of make everyone comfortable, Lacey. Don't be too emotional. Don't have feelings about what happened. And Buddy Wakefield had this has a poem. And the quote in the poem has changed how I will see forgiveness forever. And I don't know if he's the first person who said this, but in the poem, he said, forgiveness is the release of all hope for a better past. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And to me, that was so healing because I couldn't wrap my mind around forgiving abuse or the actual hurt, but I could step back and be like, that was what it was. And I have to release all hope that he's going to change. He's Uh not going to come down back in this realm and be in a human body again and do something different. And I think so much of our anger, we start looping on the past and, and trying to change what, what was. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I love that. And it reminds me of, you know, Byron Katie says something like, you know, forgiveness is when you realize that there was never anything to forgive. And, and that is great forgiveness, you know, like it's the, <laughs> your emotions have nothing to do with forgiveness. Now, the distorted version of that is the one you were talking about that was being enforced on you, which was like, you know, make everybody feel better. It doesn't really matter how you feel internally. It actually doesn't matter how you feel internally. It's That's a separate process to the forgiveness process. The forgiveness is that hopelessness that you're talking about or that realizing that there's actually nothing to forgive that, you know, the other thing Byron Katie says, which really makes people angry is like, if you knew that that was their one path of God, would you tell them, path to God, would you tell them not to take it? You know, like, and so I understand why that makes people angry, but I also understand the truth in what she's saying. So it's like the forgiveness is something that unfolds and unfolds and unfolds. And the emotional stuff is something that you work through in a different way, almost parallel or maybe holding hands with the forgiveness, but it's not the same. It's not the same process. They're just related to each other in in, in a way. Yeah. So. Yeah. Something I also think is we're kind of reformatting or changing the language and energy around is punishment. Mm. And I love punishment. (laughs) I'm a Virgo. 
Yeah. I'm a Virgo sun and rising mm-hmm. and an Aries moon. I live for that punishment. You know, <laughs> I punish myself. Um, I've punished my family in ways of being like, fuck you. I'm going to be this in spite of you. I've punished partners. And I was definitely in in my 20s really involved in activism and really into punishing the man, the system. And hurt people hurt people. And then we hurt the people collectively that hurt the people. When I was punishing everyone around me, in turn, I was like punishing me. Mm -hmm. And the most revolutionary thing I've done for myself recently is trying to let go of the reins of punishment. Mm -hmm. Let go of the reins of this person is bad and they need to know or I need to tell them the truth around this. Yeah. I I mean, I think that that's, I think it's really important to bring up. I think that the restorative justice movement, I I think actually they should stop calling it justice and just call it, or or even restorative needs a better name, but we know what I'm talking about when I say it. I think that that's one of the most profound erosions and dissolutions of the kind of time that we're in, which is, I mean, we call it doing time when someone's in prison, you know, we give them a certain Ugh. number of years. We, you know, there's, there's a whole linear process in which we think that extracting pieces of, you know, long periods of somebody's life is, you know, and th- that's because of how we view labor, how we view money, how we view property, all that kind of stuff. And so I think that the idea that we dissolve that, and instead come to a place where we take an interest and try to, if not find love, I mean, it is finding love, although that maybe they would, people in those movements wouldn't describe it that way, but finding, you know, understanding uh, in one another and understanding of what the actual healing acts would be constituted by um, and restitution would be constituted by, I, I think that all really leads us away from the greater problems that we're facing and again changes the nature of of time for us and takes away some of the way time has been sort of trapped in this diamond of power that's constantly being used so yeah i i love that you bring that up as well i mean i also find punishment you know really you know delicious or whatever sometimes it's like you really (laughs) want to meet it out but i i've i've become less and less interested in it like usually now when i have the urge to punish i notice it and i'm just like it doesn't i notice it and i'm like okay yeah like that seems like a really a lot of effort like that's usually how i feel about punishment now so much effort it takes so much energy to punish ourselves or others but but there's also um something hot about it to me there's like (laughs) this tension building of punishment Uh and then this like vigor and release of the punished (laughs) or the punisher and honestly like using role playing with punishment Mm -hmm. and sexual activity has helped me not be so hypercritical in everyday life i just i so wish that people would understand that that's so much of what sex and art and conversation are for is to work out this kind of stuff as play you know i mean it's just it 
the fact that people want to interrogate those spaces, I mean, not that they can't have their own problems, but interrogate those spaces as if they were like the same as it playing out in the social, political, economic sphere just seems crazy to me. So that people will analyze, you know, that kind of role play or whatever as a symptom of a sick, sick, sick society when sure, sometimes it is. Sometimes the punishment is someone just staying stuck in their trauma loop. But a lot of times it's the exact place where the person is playing with it, resolving it, dissolving its power, all that kind of stuff, you know? And um, yeah, I mean, so I think I, I'm really glad you brought that up there. It's like, it is one of the great, it is one of the great aspects of sex and sexuality. Yeah. And sometimes um, sometimes when I'm having sex with masculine, it's really hard for them to feel comfortable enough to get mm. into those roles with me. Because although we have this collective view that men are just so sexual and they can't control their sexuality <laughs> and they're just ready to go all the time and they objectify women. Um, I think a lot of masculines are have been feeling oppressed in their sexuality. Mm -hmm. And um, about male sexuality, something about working in the club was healing for me because I think we're taught as feminines that male sexuality is like monstrous and scary and they're all going to hurt us. And what I learned is that they wanted to have fun and they came to the club and they were playing with sex to, to enjoy themselves and mm -hmm. to connect with people. And there was this uh, community aspect to it. Uh, someday I want to talk to you about community, but I know we're <laughs> wrapping up right now, but I think it's profound your lens around community. And I feel like even being in relation, sexual relationships with masculine, that they won't go like fuck me to a point that like I find a lot of guys who want to make sensitive love to me. <laughs> and, and I'm making that sound like a problem, but I think there's an aspect in there where they're really afraid of embracing their own animalistic sexuality and playing with different trauma roles or transmuting or bringing that bigger in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> it's interesting that you bring all that up. I mean, I, the, 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 I do also appreciate the sort of typically known as male sexual enthusiasm. I love the enthusiasm, you know, and um, to the extent that, to the extent that anybody that's not in that sort of typical uh, designator feels the enthusiasm. I think that's great. You know, the, the thing about the thing about sexuality as it stands now is that it was pretty much constructed by, you know, obviously at the time, cisgendered, um, straight, I mean, th these terms are not even necessarily correct because we're talking about the late 19th century, but, you know, cisgendered, straight, white men and women 
developing a certain kind of sexual dynamic that related to the religious and social context they were in. And it's still that form of sexuality is still with us. I mean, the most obvious version of it is like men are the animalistic can never, you know, stop their urges. And like women have the virtue and are the ones who are supposed to say no and who can say no. And, you know, but don't know how to say yes. And men don't know how to hear no and all that kind of stuff. But that, that idea of sexuality and it's the idea that we refer to as healthy sexuality is a complete sham it's violent, it's exclusionary. And when we talk about sexual ethics, we always measure shit up against that. And so, you know, we talk about hypersexualizing people, or we talk about, you know, what, (laughs) what's, what's appropriate for, you know, with this or that act, what constitutes sex and porn addiction, all these kinds of things. And they're measured up against something that is a violent sham created by people in groups that we are consistently interrogating in all the other ways. So, you know, sex is obviously um, threatening, you know, for a lot of reasons um, to people and institutions who want to use power. But one of the ways in which it's threatening is that you know, it's one of the last places where those groups have gone completely uninterrogated. Those structures have gone completely uninterrogated and are still accepted as the default of health. And, um, you know, I mean, I try to sort of, (laughs) I try, I, I overcompensate sometimes when I talk about this, like when I'm talking in particular, I have a friend who, you know, she's, a cis gender identified lesbian here, you know, we, we're always just like straight people should just never have any conversations about sexuality like publicly <laughs> ever again. Cause they fucking fucked it up for everybody. Right. But obviously I'm just, I'm just making a joke when I say that. And I know I'm excluding, you know, some other aspects of that argument when I can say that, but it's like, you know, the fact of the matter is the, understanding is that we anybody who is outside of those groups will always absorb and respect those understandings of what sex healthy sexuality is and um you know that's really crazy and shitty so um i think that definitely plays into (laughs) these tensions you know, these tensions and, and how to navigate them. We don't really know what healthy sexuality is. Um, yeah. And and it's also a question for the individual. I mean, you know, my, my, my sort of the thing I've said many times over the years is if you ever want to know how somebody feels about freedom, start talking about sex because yes. it's so densely woven together as an individualized thing. Sex, sex is sexuality is and um it's so challenging on so many levels and spills out of any container you try to hold it in um so yeah yeah and i feel like just for me personally it i'm exploring how to honor the masculine sexuality and feminines 
can embrace what I consider that masculine sexuality, that boldness, that aggression. And when we suppress sexuality in any person or any group, we're suppressing it in ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we're like walking in these cages and bumping into each other. So I love what you're saying about freedom connected to sex. I could talk to you all day, but I feel like I should probably just stop myself (laughs) because I've taken up a lot of your time, but I've so appreciated this. When I messaged you, you said you weren't a poet, but as you speak, it feels like poetry. It feels like there's a sense of even channeling something higher than this self as you're speaking. Hmm. So I'm I'm thankful for your words today and your time. Can you tell us? a little bit about your book and where people can find you. Yeah. Well, so the book is not out until May of 2022 or April of 2022. It was supposed to come out this year, but because of, you know, if you might've heard of the world events happening, um, it got (laughs) pushed. Uh, And uh, it's called Hawk Mountain. And it's a very, very dark novel about to, um, my, how does my publisher describe it? A blood spattered high Patricia High Smithian novel about when men can't express love or something like that. I forget, but wow. that's a pretty good that's a pretty good description of wow. it. Um, <laughs> and um, and it's also a condemnation of uh, education and school. So uh, I I <laughs> I managed to get all that in there. Um, Dope. The the uh, the main thing until then really is my podcast against everyone with Connor Habib, which is on every platform. I have a Patreon. Um, it's exclusively, you know, funded by patrons. I don't have sponsors. It's completely listener supported, and that's patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. I do have a Twitter at Connor Habib. I do have an Instagram against everyone with Connor Habib. And that's it. I mean, it, I'm always happy when people reach out and say hi. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, I welcome it, even if I don't always get back to everybody. I try. <laughs> oh, I feel that. I feel that. Everyone check out, if you haven't listened to his podcast, it's one of my favorite podcasts right now. Thank you. But thank you so much for being here and have a wonderful day. Bye. Bye. listening to horror pod if you want to book a reading with me 
you can go to my website, laceyfree.com, or follow me on Instagram at laceyisfree for more of my poetry, and I'll start doing more lives on there about energy and herbs. If you have questions about herbs or about sex or your own superpowers, or you want to do a healing session with me, laceyfree.com is a great place for that. If you want to share some of your poetry and talk to like-minded individuals about sex magic, about magical beings, about trauma, or just share your art, poems, we have a Facebook page. Horpod has a Facebook page. Just search Horpod on Facebook and join the group and be friends with people. Share some of your shit. And I'm also on Twitter, I guess, kind of. I don't know. Twitter scares me, guys. But you can follow Horpod at Horpod on Twitter. I love you, and I'm sending you all sacred fucking rage. In love.